Well, hello. This is data-driven Formula One, and I'm going to be Grebna, and Patrick Hens is with me today. And we are hello. going to talk about... Hi, Patrick. We're going to talk about uh, Juan Manuel Fangio and, uh, yeah, his career, his legacy, and, uh, you know, what he means to the Formula One sport. Um, again, uh, I will do the intros. Um, uh, so I'm a, I'm a professor of business analytics and data science, and I wrote several papers on Formula One and behavioral scientists. So I'm, I'm approaching this as a kind of amateur in uh, engineering, but sort of a person who knows a lot about behavior. And Patrick wrote multiple books on, on Formula One. Uh, so he wrote, I mean, one of my favorite books on Enzo Ferrari, <laughs> written by Patrick and uh, um, compliance as a, as a Formula One car. So that's another really cool book um that that patrick wrote and yeah so we are just talking about something that we're really passionate about and that's formula one and today we're going to discuss fungio yeah um, thank you Kana. and uh, what we also we both like is uh, not only to uh, retell the story of formula one but also somehow align this uh, to today's uh, to us to uh, to management to science uh, whatever and with this, yeah. I think uh, uh, the data-driven Formula One channel is a little bit different than, than other channels or other uh, podcasts who also speak about Formula One. Yeah, and we're interested in insight, like what insight can we derive from data and how data can help you differentiate yourself from others. And, uh, you know, we use um, Formula One history to be able to tell the story about how data changed throughout the history. So today we're talking about Juan Manuel Fangio, um, who was, yeah, born in 1911 and died, uh, well, relatively recently, I have to say, 1995, a long life. Yeah. Um, uh, so last time we talk, talked about Nina Ferrino, who died in a car, and he was very young when he died, but, you know, uh, Fangio lived a long life, um, and was um, he was five-time uh, champion, world champion, right? If I'm not mistaken, um, yeah. Yes. And yeah. and uh, and Fancho, and maybe uh, you want to come back to this later. Uh, for some, also based on on data on studies, is uh, the best Formula One driver ever. I yeah, I, I want to I want to question that paper. Actually, <laughs> I think we need a separate episode. Yeah. So Patrick refers to uh, yes. a paper that was written by um, uh, 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 people from. Uh, so one of the co-authors is definitely from University of Sheffield, and there are some other people uh, on that paper. So there is a paper. Uh, trying to establish who is the best uh, driver of all time. And uh, that paper argued that Juan Manuel Fangio is the best driver of all time. But I think we will do a separate episode discussing that paper because really it depends on your assumption of, of, of what the best driver means, what it means yes. to be the best driver. So, um, well, we will talk about Fangio as a, as a great man and a great driver, but uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, I'm, not, I'm not that, I have to say here that I'm not that convinced that the results of that paper 
are valid. <laughs> I think this is something that we can discuss in a separate episode. Exactly, and I'm sure we will discuss. And uh, I mean, in, in general, I have uh, your uh, opinion as, uh, I mean, from my point of view, it's impossible to compare a Formula One driver in 1950 to somebody in 2020, as even uh, uh, if it's still called Formula One, I mean, today's car, there's nearly nothing to do with the 1950 Formula One car. And the races have been also different. So, uh, but anyway, I think it will be a great uh, discussion. Um, so uh, you see here a, a brief profile. Uh, uh, he was born 1911. Yeah, in- and, and we have to say, yeah, he was born in, uh, in, a, uh, in a family of Italian immigrants. So, so his grandfather came from Italy. Uh, and they bought some land, I think, in Argentina. And yeah, he he had um, he, there were six children in in that family, and he was the fourth child. So it was not like he had a big. I mean, he was not like poor guy. <laughs> you know, they had some some property, but uh, definitely it was a very challenging uh, challenging environment. Um, yeah, another thing that was quite striking about his childhood is that at the age of 13, he quit school and decided to become a mechanic. And uh, from the age of 16, he was basically going door to door fixing people's cars and uh, he got quite sick. He, he actually had, um, um, he caught uh, some illness. I don't know how accurate the diagnosis were at the time, but he had some sort of very bad chest infection. And he was basically bedridden for uh, a very long time. And uh, his mother was uh, his main carer. And I think that was the reason why when he, when he kind of <laughs> uh, finally um, his health became slightly better, his parents let him do whatever he wanted. <laughs> you can take the garage, right, and do whatever you want. But then he was also in the army, right? He was enlisted in the army and uh, that's where his uh, talent, in a sense, his driving talent was discovered because he was driving an officer as far as I understand. And then he started competing. So he finally felt that he could actually, you know, compete. Uh, and so that that uh, that was an, an, an absolutely amazing journey into driving because you know at at one point like I said he was uh, he was definitely someone who was very interested in cars but um, uh, you know it's not like he was from year uh, from four years of age three years of age like Lewis Hamilton was you know participating in races or something he was just uh, someone who was interested in cars and then you know almost uh, uh, you know we can say almost died because uh, you know he was ill as a kid and then you know he had um, uh, support from his parents to do what he wanted mm-hmm. to pursue his passion And then, yeah, so he drove for many different yes, teams. And, uh, yeah, yeah, go uh, ahead. Oh, sorry, uh, I just wanted to uh, add a little bit. Um, uh, as you've mentioned, his family originally came uh, from Italy. Uh, so they immigrated to Argentina, uh, which is uh, not that uncommon as a high part of uh, Argentinians. Uh, their ancestors came from uh, Italy. Uh, so, it, for example, if you have the luck to uh, go there, you may recognize that the 
Spanish spoken in Argentine has like a slight Italian accent. Um, and uh, quite uh, sim uh, similar to uh, Farina, uh, with, about whom we spoke last time, uh, he also was, uh, in general, uh, quite, he liked uh, sports, uh, so he had been also quite good in uh, playing uh, football or football, soccer, yeah. as you call it in the US. And that's why he also got one of his uh, two nicknames, El Treco, which means uh, the bow-ledged or bendy-legged one in the way as he was able to dribble uh, with the ball. Uh, the other nickname, El Maestro, is uh, a little bit more related to, of course, to his driving um, style, as uh, he was able uh, to be successful with, uh, with uh, nearly whatever car. Uh, he's the only one uh, up to today who had been able to win uh, championships with four different uh, brands, Alfa Romeo, Ferrari, Mercedes-Benz and uh, Maserati. Uh, so, uh, but his overall, uh, but his overall championship record was beaten by Michael Schumacher. Yes. Right? I don't know, yes. maybe someone else by now. By now, but yeah, definitely, yes. uh, yeah, Michael exactly. comes to mind. <laughs> as one yes, but uh, Michael uh, only won with two different uh, yeah, brands: yeah. with Benetton and Ferrari. So, true, this is true. the the outstanding here from uh, Fancho is that he was able to do this with four different uh, brands. Yeah. And this, uh, yeah, but I think, uh, you know, like you said, uh, Patrick, I mean, back in the day, it was completely different. I mean, the yes. team, what the meaning of the team was completely different, right? It exactly. was uh, a handful of people and probably the driver was the main guy, you know, making the majority of decisions. So, so exactly. you know, yeah. Uh, exactly. But let's say interesting is, uh, so even if he has, uh, let's say, a more Italian uh, background, uh, uh, he was he wasn't uh, feeling that he, that attached uh, to the team, so he he joined teams. He he left teams where he saw it is best for him. So he not felt uh, somehow attached uh, to the teams that you that you stay there for longer time. So this was, I think, uh, quite interesting. Yeah, I think uh, he, like he strikes me as a very very independent guy. Yes, um, exactly. And. Um, you know, very independent decision maker. Um, we also, I think also to add to his character was that he never married. He had a girlfriend for many years, yeah. <laughs> but he never married. Um, and I think that's also kind of shows the, you know, that, that it's, it's kind of, you know, he's his own, he's his own man. Exactly. <laughs> Making his own decisions. Um, yeah, and uh, that kind of relative or absolute independence from everything, uh, I think, uh, sometimes helped and sometimes backfired. But yeah, that was his way. Um, that was his way of doing things. And uh, even when he retired, he, um, uh, he bought a, a Mercedes dealership and then he became the head of Mercedes in Argentina. Um, uh, so he was, uh, yeah, quite an, an important guy for Mercedes uh, in the, in that region. Um, yeah, so in a sense, he was, uh, you know, in, even when he retired, he's, he was very much connected with, with cars. Exactly. Um, and I also feel, uh, you know, sometimes uh, we will see that in, in, with some drivers uh, that, you know, kind of stuck around probably for a little bit too long in the sport. You can't really say that about Fangio. I think he exited at exactly the right moment yeah. <laughs> and then just was returning sometimes for some showcase driving. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, it was uh, 
very very interesting career definitely uh, very thought through uh, strategy of how he did things and uh, yeah there were some adventures as well that we're gonna talk about soon but yeah <laughs> he he won uh, like you see on the slide he had 24 wins and uh, he, in the in the in in the world in the world championship and yeah he won um i thought he won five five uh, five competitions right if, if i'm not yes. mistaken yeah yes we will see this yeah yeah and uh, so he won uh, with alfa romeo and maserati i believe right it was maserati yes. the, so yeah yeah so yes we, we will show this uh, yeah we have a separate slide sorry you exactly. have to forgive me i don't uh, <laughs> remember all the teams but uh, yeah definitely yeah so we do have alfa romeo ferrari maserati and mercedes yeah that's that's yeah. what we have on the on the screen and like i said mercedes was his kind of continued he continued his journey with mercedes after he retired exactly and uh, but also as you said he stayed quite independent because i don't know from which year but also he did uh, some commer uh, tv commercials for alfa romeo later so he somehow he always stays uh, quite independent yeah exactly exactly and uh, the, we will show yeah the kind of his later photos i think he was uh, paid uh, twenty thousand dollars to qualify <laughs> for, for a race and later like one of the later years so we'll we'll come back to that yeah and uh, um, this is a uh, uh, come to a different uh, chapter and i think uh, something we like to do in in this um, in this uh, podcast uh, to speak uh, not only to show you the normal dates number of wins but also maybe uh, present some interesting chapters which uh, which you uh, conclude or may also conclude to his character or how he was uh, in, in person and one uh, interesting chapter from my point of view uh, is his experience with the uh, Cuban uh, Grand Prix Mm -hmm. uh, the Cuban Grand Prix, uh, we are not speaking about uh, Formula One, but uh, sports cars. And as mentioned in, in the last uh, episode, at uh, this time uh, in the 1950s, drivers not drove exclusively sports cars or exclusively uh, Formula One, or, but they, they switched and uh, yeah. so they have been more universal. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, we need to mention that he he basically drove at Le Mans, and uh, there is. Um, uh, so we we talked about when we talked about 1951 season. We showed you Simca Gortini uh, car. It was kind of. Um, I mean, same color, but almost completely different car for Le to survive the 24 hours. And uh, he drove, you know, he he participated in 1950 competition in Le Mans. And uh, yes, yeah, so he was, uh, um, he, yeah, he basically drove not only, the point is like he drove in a lot of other out-of-season uh, events. Uh, he drove the, uh, at Le Mans and not in one season, but in multiple seasons. And he was also in uh, in Formula One. So he was uh, really very enthusiastic about his driving and uh, his competition. Exactly. I mean, he was a real, dry, a real uh, racer, you may mm -hmm. conclude. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we are uh, in 1957 uh, and uh, Fancho, together with a lot of other drivers, had been invited uh, uh, to participate in the Grand Prix of uh, Cuba, 
And uh, something similar, which uh, uh, we mentioned in the last episode, uh, also here, the uh, actual uh, dictator, Fulgencio Batista, uh, wanted uh, to present the power of his country uh, with technology and uh, with uh, such competitive uh, events. So that's why he also tried uh, to invite famous uh, dri drivers to have such an Uh, race car e events, uh, including the world's most uh, fastest uh, cars at that moment, including uh, Ferrari, uh, Maserati, and uh, others. American and cars, it, so, so Americans yes. uh, definitely uh, were, yeah, so it was quite different from uh, Fidel Castro's uh, <laughs> regime. Yes. So, and the uh, Americans actually, you know, could, could go at the time. So that was before, prior, uh, prior to 1960 and uh, the, the whole kind of crisis that, that we saw then. And yeah, so the, at that time it was still possible to see American tourists <laughs> yes. in, in Cuba. Yeah. And of course it was also meant to get uh, tourists uh, to the country. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. And it was uh, for the drivers, uh, it was of course uh, very impressing uh, of the setting. For example, uh, Sterling Moss uh, said uh, racing along the waterfront of the Malecon in the vibrant city of Havana was a remarkable experience. I mean, as we have seen uh, maybe photos and videos of uh, Cuba or have been there ourselves, we may imagine the atmosphere of such a race in this, uh, in this setting. Um, 1957, the race at the end uh, was uh, won by Juan Manuel Fancho. At that time, he was uh, driving a Maserati 300S. And on the second uh, position, second and third, uh, we had two Ferraris. Uh, the first one by Carol Shelby, and maybe a name you may familiar with. Uh, Carol Shelby, the uh, creator of the famous uh, Cobra. Uh, in fact, mm -hmm. he had been first driving for Ferrari, but due to differences with uh, Enzo Ferrari, different opinions, uh, he, he split uh, from the company and decided first uh, to uh, design the Cobra and then uh, support um, Ford uh, in the efforts to win the 24 hours of Le, Le Mans. Le Mans, yeah, and there is a now uh, a, a recent film yes. <laughs> with... Uh, Matt Damon, where <laughs> you know this uh, this epic Le Mans um, uh, competition is portrayed, and how you know Shelby was kind of instrumental to to exactly. So uh, he's to, to, all, to he also became a very famous person in uh, motorsports. Yeah, because uh, you know that was the, the time when Ford uh, decided to beat Ferrari <laughs> Le Mans. And, uh, yeah, so, but that's a different story. Today we're going to concentrate on Fancho. <laughs> It's a di different story. And uh, uh, anyway, so the 57 uh, uh, race was quite successful. Uh, so the regime uh, uh, decided to have it uh, again the next year, 1958. Uh, but here we had some uh, tragic uh, events, uh, especially, well, not especially for Fancho, but also for Fancho as he was uh, kidnapped. He was yeah. kidnapped by, mm -hmm. uh, by rebels who have been already near uh, to, let's say, to the new uh, revolutionary circles. And the idea was to uh, sabotage the race with the idea that the, gov the government would cancel the race, which would be bad for all the 
tourism would show that the country is politically unstable again uh, with this uh, uh, to, uh, to show uh, to the other countries and to avoid that more uh, tourists would like to visit Cuba so to weaken uh, the actual regime. Um, yeah, so this is where Fidel Castro support, support us, um, yes. yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, so... Maybe not directly him, but let's say they have been left wing... Yeah, yeah, uh, left, yeah, 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 exactly, the, the, the kind of the revolutionary uh, exactly. rebels, yeah. Yeah, but unfortunately for them, I mean, the plan didn't work out, so... Uh, well, uh, kind of like, I think it was, yeah, it, it didn't work out in the sense that the race wasn't uh, cancelled, the, yeah. the race still went ahead. Uh, however, um, you know, but Batista still looked a little bit stupid as a result because, yes, you know, yes, the, the yes, law enforcement yes. couldn't do much about the fact that the front runner and probably the most probable winner of the race was actually captured by the kidnappers. And uh, yeah, so in that sense, uh, that wasn't very, uh, yeah, that's still kind of partially, yeah, it didn't have a massive impact, but it partially did succeed in, uh, in, in, in signaling the instability in the region. Exactly. So as you said, uh, Batista looked quite helpless as he couldn't uh, do anything, let's say, to protect uh, uh, these star drivers. But nevertheless, uh, uh, Batista uh, decided that the race has to go on, and uh, it went uh, go on just without a fun job. But uh, unfortunately, um, maybe even more tragic, well, quite surely more tragic, um, there was a, a fatal accident as the local driver, Armando Garcia Cifuentes, uh, lost control over his uh, Ferrari at a curve, uh, ironically, near the U.S. Embassy, and uh, the car crashed into a, a group of people. Yet uh, seven uh, people died and about 40 had been injured, so the Grand Prix had been stopped and Moss was declared uh, as the winner as he was leading the race at that uh, moment. Yeah, I think it was also important to, to, to explain that uh, the, so the race actually happened within the city and uh, it wasn't quite... Yes. Uh, it's not like it, there was a track, so it's it's quite a different um, a different way of driving because you know it's uh, when you have a track, it's kind of you get used to it and you have an, an opportunity to race in advance. I mean, this was literally in the middle of Havana, so you couldn't actually train much there on that on that road. So you're, you're basically racing in the middle of the city. And even though, you know, for the time it was not that unusual, I mean, yes, those conditions were not conditions where you could do much and uh, mistakes like this uh, happened. And so, yeah, you can see uh, this, these are the photos from the actual event. Um, and yeah, so... Yeah, um, we've already talked last time when we talked about Nina Farina, when Nina Farina crashed into uh, a crowd in Argentina. But I mean, this was another example where 
you know, the audience was too close to the track, or track, quote-unquote track, but it was actually just a road. And you can see there in the photo that there are just some basically sandbags uh, along the track, so there's not much protection at all. Like if you, if you drive off the road, then you can't stop and you would be, you would be crashing into people. There is nothing. Exactly, but let's say this was nothing special uh, to Cuba. This was how the driving was, especially in Europe. We had uh, the Mille Miglia, we had the Targa Florio, we had the mm -hmm. street races around uh, Mugello. So it was quite the way which was quite uh, common. Yeah, yeah, it was common. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, but I mean, uh, the, uh, what I what I was trying to say is that you know, on a usual track, like you had some exactly. way of training, like you could go and train on the track but i mean <laughs> in the city like you can't really yes. do that so the 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 probability is a lot higher uh if you can't train obviously and then to to, to have a, to have a, 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 an accident and this yeah. was unfortunately you know exactly uh, that's Yes, and that's why also these races uh, died out in in europe as they have been unfortunately each year Uh, many uh, uh, deadly accidents, not only drivers uh, died, but also they crashed uh, into groups. Uh, also because um, the people, they really stand directly beside the streets, as you maybe still saw in the 1980s in the Valley Championships. Mm -hmm. they, they tried to get their photo and just jumped back in, in the last seconds. Also the people uh, themselves they not uh, they brought themselves into danger and at the end all of these races uh, had been yeah. cancelled at, at one point when i looked at the data of on fatalities actually throughout the history of formula one we had uh, about 50 fatalities that with drivers i mean you know mm. that happened either in qualifying or at the actual races so it's not that it's not that bad if you think about the speeds at which you know mm -hmm. these guys operate um but um clearly some of the regulations that we have at the moment they're there to protect to protect the drivers Uh, and obviously, you know, the tracks are designed and in ways in which, you know, it's difficult to, to, uh, to injure people. But even, even then, you know, we, we, from every once in a while, we do have, uh, you know, injuries and, you know, quite a, quite a dangerous situations for the drivers. But back in the day, yeah, it was, uh, uh, I'm actually surprised that there are, just you know 50 people we were talking about you know like when we look at the whole uh, the risk uh, the whole kind of percentage of risk that people yeah. were taking every time they would be driving these cars yeah I completely agreed Mm -hmm. So yeah, so so we have to say that uh, it all kind of had a despite this fatality for Fangio, it was an adventure, right? It it was exactly, quite, and uh, this is interesting. Uh, as later, uh, uh, the word adventure comes also back in one of his uh, famous quotes. So let's say he uh, he seemed to have a good, uh, uh, relatively good uh, relation with the kidnappers, so he didn't felt a an additional threat for himself, for his health or life. So really he perceived it as an adventure. 
And yeah, so, yeah. So they, they treat him uh, quite well, even though yeah. he was um, captured. So, so it was, uh, he was told uh, on the outset that they're just going to hold him until the end of the race. Yep. And that's exactly what happened. He was released after the race. Uh, so they kept the promise. Yep. And um, yeah, exactly. and uh, yeah, but the legacy of uh, Havana Championship kind of ended uh, <laughs> very soon. Um, yes. It, yeah. I mean, it, it continued even a little bit after the new uh, regime took over, but they. Uh, they changed the location to not have it in this uh, uh, important uh, part, the capital, but somewhere near an, an airport. So there was the last race uh, in 1960. And uh, again, it was uh, Sterling Moss who won in a Maserati. And also uh, the competitors still had been uh, other famous uh, car makers as uh, Ferrari, but this was really the last one. And quite interesting, uh, it happened after uh, the new uh, regime was already in place. So it was not uh, that we had a revolution and uh, everything became forbidden, but it was also a, a, a kind of process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, I guess it just became very difficult for the competitors to get to Havana afterwards. So it, yes. it was a combination of reasons. And of course, um, I think maybe also partly, you know, Formula One is such an elitist sport that was pro probably didn't quite <laughs> measure up to the aspirations of the of the people in power in Cuba after 1960 that such a kind of posh event would take place in Havana. Maybe there were like, obviously it was not the only reason, but yeah, it was kind of combination of reasons there. And, uh, you know, yeah, the difficulty of getting there with U.S. not, you know, you're not able to fly from the U.S., which means that you're flying quite far away um, or, you know, taking a boat, which is even worse. So it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. just the complexity. I mean, today, it, today it's even worse. I mean, you're not, uh, of course, you're not allowed to fly from the U.S., but also uh, based on the uh, restrictions uh, I thought it eased a little bit now. Isn't that true? I'm not no, aware east, of the current. But they took it the east back. So let's say if uh, okay, let's say, I see. Mm -hmm. let's say if I I am Maserati and uh, I'm going, I'm not allowed to do business in uh, in Cuba. Uh, if not, uh, I would be blacklisted inside the U.S. And as for Maserati, as for all others, the important market is the U.S. and not Cuba. Of course, uh, nobody mm -hmm. would try to bypass uh, uh, such regulations. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's a kind of a combination of business and politics that we are looking at yeah. <laughs> here. But uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the important uh, point here, again, um, just to understand the character of Fangio, you know, I think um, it probably isn't an, an, a, a pleasant event, uh, even if, uh, you know, you've been uh, treated well or whatnot. But, you know, I don't think every person uh, would describe that as an adventure. But, I mean, this guy did. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, that also shows, uh, shows the character that, you know, he understood why. He was obviously explained why that this happened. And, uh, you know, he... Um, uh, took it uh, 
Uh, yeah, he basically, I'm not, I'm not going to say he took it lightly, but uh, he basically, you know, he, 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 he basically didn't make a big uh, fuss out of it that, you know, I'm a star and, you know, this happened. So he, he uh, even uh, in some interviews was saying that if, uh, if it was done for a good cause for, you know, for the people of Cuba, then he would support this yeah. type of stuff. So, you know, he, he was quite a, um, quite, uh, uh, he, yeah, he, he, he was a very strong person uh, in that sense. So, yes, and yeah. I mean, also, I mean, as being uh, Argentinian, I mean, you've been, uh, you, let's say, used to revolutions in, in uh, South America at that time. I mean, uh, he himself was supported by the left-wing government in Argentina by Perón e Evita, so theoretically, uh, he wasn't, uh, I mean, of course, they're not that left uh, as, uh, as the communist Cuba, but let's say he was used to uh, left governments and have been supported by such. Mm -hmm. So this may be another reason why the kidnappers uh, treated him uh, quite good. Yeah, but this yeah. is, a, let's say, a theory. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, still, a very strange choice of uh, of, uh, of a person for the yes, for, for the kid for the kidnapping. Uh, you know, especially considering the uh, kind of all the relationships with uh, uh, you know with with uh, Argentinian government. But you know, okay, well, they made that decision, and that's what happened. And you know, like uh, like like I'm saying, like I I just think that not every everybody would come out. Uh, from this experience and say, oh, actually, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was an easy walk for me, you know, that, 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 uh, I think you need to have some presence of character to do that. Exactly. I completely <laughs> agree. Yeah, in terms of technology, yeah, very interesting uh, set of cars there. And, uh, you know, we are only showing you the Formula One, um, uh, or, you know, yeah, even like 1949, this is Ferrari, obviously, but, but you know, that's kind of prior to uh, championships. Um, exactly. And uh, I mean, so um, also uh, as he started being a career as a mechanic, uh, so he was not the gentleman driver. And also he had to build, uh, um, he, he had to go to the smaller uh, series. So he started as he would uh, do also today in a Formula 2 car before he had been able to drive in Formula One. So uh, quite a classic way uh, to arrive in the series. Yeah, exactly. And uh, like we said before, he was driving in other, in other events. Uh, yes. um, and uh, definitely there is a whole range of, uh, in, terms of uh, in terms of technology, there is a whole range right there. Um, and notice, like after Alfa Romeo, he uh, was uh, driving Maserati, and even in you know he was he came back to Maserati after going to Mercedes and Ferrari. Uh, yeah. So that uh, that again just shows that he was basically, uh, like Patrick said before, he was taking the opportunities uh, within mm -hmm. the teams, but also he was taking the opportunities with engineering. I think. Uh, uh, each one of these teams had something interesting going on in terms of uh, you know new new piece of new piece of idea <laughs> in terms of engineering and uh, yeah so uh, that that kind of also shows that he tried to to very um, 
uh, you know what he can do in terms of uh, you know speeding the spe- speeding the car up um, and that uh, whichever team provided more potential in his in his view was uh, on top of his radar right yes. and i also can can imagine that this um, you know this ferrari um in particular it might have been quite difficult uh decision for him to go to ferrari in 1956 because that's kind of very two very strong characters yes, <laughs> and, and ferrari maybe, this and... Was, maybe this was the reason why it was just one year yeah yeah but uh you know so but i i feel also that he just tried different things and uh, like i said he was riding uh, gardini in other uh, in on other occasions and you know like i said he was then then he was driving uh, mercedes after he retired uh, and was quite an active um, promoter of mercedes uh, trademark um, in uh, um in Argentina afterwards so yeah I just think that it was his way to to try different things and different teams <laughs> yeah and, and uh, uh, one uh, important point and it's the reason why uh, 52 you see it in in uh, gray he won the 51 uh, championship with Alfa Romeo but uh, as Alfa left uh, the championship in 51 he was the champion but uh, without uh, a contract, so uh, he hadn't been able to drive the 51 championship. So uh, he took the opportunity, which have been especially offered by Maserati to drive for them for some none of the various non-championship races. Uh, uh, and uh, thanks to this, uh, he got into contact with Maserati and uh, they offered him a seat for the 53 season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, and we see the BRM there already as well. So that's uh, that's another very interesting, <laughs> very interesting team that we're gonna discuss uh, when we get to 1952 season and uh, yeah. going forward uh, in 1950s. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, again, but but you know the the cool thing, yeah, I guess uh, he was not afraid to try different things exactly. and uh, took it as an opportunity. Uh, um, rather than the challenge and I think yeah so he um, he was um, I, I, I think uh, again in comparison with Nina Farina Nina Farina I just ima- I mean I haven't met the guy obviously but I imagine that he was quite a quite a crazy person in terms of you know like wanting to win um, yeah, Fangio, I, I imagine that he was quite a weighted guy in that sense. I mean, obviously he was, he liked the speed and he liked the cars, but it was constantly the kind of rational, you know, the dominant rational part uh, in him when he was uh, considering what team to pick and how, you know, how I want to do uh, strategically, uh, you know, what is my strategic positioning this season and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I agree. And I mean, with this, we are already uh, deep in the discussions about uh, the behavior. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that uh, that is quite... Um, um, yeah, we covered, can, I think, most of, the, most of the list there. Yeah, again, I think I'd say that he was quite... Um, uh, quite a calculating person in that in that sense. So he was... Uh, I feel that he was he was not just, you know, 
not it was not a, never a win at all costs i think it was very weighted uh, you know risk against opportunity uh, each time and um, yeah definitely i think he's understanding of mechanical engineering always helped as well because uh, um, yeah like I said uh, before when we discussed in 1951 season you know be it a decision about tires be a decision about you know the general uh, uh, race strategy it was always uh, very very weighted um, despite the fact that he had a very strong character and definitely um, exactly. Okay. And I guess, uh, resuming all this, this is the reason why they called him the maestro, the master. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, like we said before, there is even a paper saying that he's the greatest driver. <laughs> but uh, I mean, we're going to question that a little bit later. But yeah. Um, and, yeah. Uh, yeah and so this are uh, this are uh, this is again okay, his picture from kind of later later years um exactly and, uh, i mean as he was such a, a famous champion the, you can find a number of uh, quotes from him mm -hmm. uh, so i put here some uh, interest some of them which i find uh, interesting and shows uh, his character uh, for the first the races are not won in the first curve, but uh, many times lost uh, there. And uh, this is what we uh, discussed. He was uh, a calculating person, so uh, he was maybe not that uh, emotional uh, driven, but he know uh, what it is uh, important to really win uh, the race. And which means that maybe you have to give in in the first uh, curve, uh, let your competitor pass but uh, ensure that you stay on the track and stay inside uh, the race. So he yeah. really was thinking uh, on the long term. Yeah, he, he reminds me a lot of Nicky Lauder. And, you know, yes. like if I had a, like if you, obviously Nicky Lauder is someone we, you know, we we could see a lot yes. in, in, in commenting uh, sport. And uh, uh, so when I think of Nina Farina, I think, uh, you know, it's, he probably was quite close to Nicky Lauda in kind of character where, yes. you know, you would be very determined, but at the same time, you always think, okay, so this is the opportunity and this is the risk. And so how do I balance these two yes. things to kind of exactly. get my best shot? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Then the, the next, uh, and I think this is uh, somehow related to his background as a mechanic, which gives him a good uh, uh, insight. So he, he was, as a driver, very empathic uh, uh, into the machine. So uh, he, he had a holistic idea how, uh, how the car works uh, and also uh, what his role uh, as a driver is uh, to make the car work which we see maybe on another quote so here you see i learned to approach racing like a game of billiard if you bash the ball too hard you get nowhere as you handle the cure the cue uh, properly you will drive more uh, finesse so i think this uh, uh, this uh, understanding uh, um, um, and for him that in opposite to uh, other drivers uh, which permanently went to the limit he tried to maybe to stay a little bit under the limit uh, because also at that time the cars have been not that uh, reliable. Mm -hmm. yep. 
And as I said, uh, this, the next uh, maybe shows uh, the same idea a little bit uh, more on point. The driver of a racing car is a component. When I first begin, I used to grip the steering wheel firmly and I changed gear so hard that I damaged my hand. So he understand really uh, as a mechanic uh, how the car works holistically and he understood that uh, uh, while he takes the seat uh, inside the car, that he becomes a part of this, this um, machine-human combination. Mm -hmm. So he had uh, an understanding, a, a feeling, what he has to do to make this whole package human plus machine uh, uh, efficiently uh, working. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And uh, how, how the whole collaboration works. So it's a collaborative effort. Uh, so yeah, it's... Uh, a little bit, uh, you know, I have this friend who is uh, who's, uh, uh, yeah, a piano player and uh, he says always that, you know, the piano is like a, it's an organism. <laughs> and, uh, some, some make it sing and some make it just, you know, just make a noise. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's where the maestro probably also comes from, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, uh, I mean, you see also what he also said, never think of your car as a cold machine, but as a hot-blooded uh, horse. So this sounds something a little bit more typical uh, Italian, maybe his heritage. Uh, so again, it shows as a mechanic, he understood uh, the car and uh, I mean, he felt somehow empathic uh, uh, to the machine. And I mean, uh, we also also see this today, uh, not only race drivers, but a lot of other people, uh, they somehow uh, personalize their cars or other machines or even give uh, their cars uh, a name. Yeah. Uh, a point which, uh, of course, we not only discuss uh, with, uh, with cars, but something which gets also relevant uh, if we speak about robotics, artificial intelligence, as we may tempt it to see an algorithm, something like a living being. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, we have the typical motivational quote, uh, you must always strive to be the best, but you never must believe that you are. The best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something which you can uh, include in all uh, motivational management courses. Yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, because then you stop developing. Yeah, so that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, the last one uh, on this page is something I think also, as I said, like uh, my Michael Schumacher, driving fast on the track does not scare me. What scares me is when I drive on the highway, I get passed by some idiot who thinks he's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yes, uh, uh, it's somehow understandable because when you're on the racetrack, uh, I mean, of course, uh, it should be more dangerous than on the, on the normal streets, but uh, the good thing is, you know, that uh, all the other uh, 20, 12 other pilots, are, they are professionals. They, they had a lot of experience to drive at the limit. And uh, this may have, uh, make you feel a maybe a little bit um, more safer than it is the situation. Yeah, and um, again, it's also about, um, you know, the fact that uh, we, we consider uh, Formula One as uh, highly risky 
uh, thing, but you know, for a Formula One driver, this is a job, and that's completely yes. not how they see it. And uh, they could be quite risk averse, <laughs> you know, when they're driving the car. Yes. Uh, it's it's just all about the training and uh, you know experience. Uh, so they don't do not see it as a risky activity. They see it as something else. And I think in the uh, in 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 the daily scenarios, uh, this kind of extreme risk taking is just it just mimics uh, the drivers uh, the racing driver behavior, whereas actual racing driver behavior is completely the opposite of you know just you know I'm I'm gonna go and and be the first at all costs. So that's completely different thinking in there, and that's what. Yes, and uh, maybe also this uh, you here you can compare him again to Nicky Lauda. Uh, I I assume you saw the the movie Rush. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, I did, uh, I did. Yeah. yeah, I mean there was also one of the scenes where he was driving uh, with some of his fans, uh, with his girlfriend, who asked him to drive like a racing driver, and he first refused because he said, "I'm I'm not driving in a race. Why should mm. I drive fast or, or something like this?" Mm -hmm. So yeah, quite similar exactly. what uh, Fancho said here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, this is uh, so. This is him in 1986, I think, in the Nürburgring. Let um, mm -hmm. just uh, confirm. Um, yeah, this is 19, 1986 in, in Nürburgring uh, um, when he was just doing this like <laughs> show, showcase drive. But yeah, also the, yeah, so he actually was paid, uh, I just remembered in 1958, he was paid $20,000 to qualify in Indianapolis mm -hmm. um, with um, Curtis Offenhauser um, car that we saw when we we, uh, when we showed 1950 yeah. season, we demonstrated some of the, we had like a picture uh, of the Fenhauser cars. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, he didn't qualify at, the, <laughs> at that point, but he was, uh, he was willing to try. He was willing to, to get in the car yeah. and, and try to do it. So yeah, and that's kind of, uh, you know, also showcasing his character. But this is him in 1986 driving, as you can see, Mercedes uh, in, um, in Nürburgring. Yeah. yeah. And it is interesting, his quote here, in my day, it was 75% car and mechanic, 20% driver and luck. Today, it's 95% the car. So... Uh, an, an interesting idea and I mean it would be uh, confirmed uh, with the fact that he won for his championship with four different uh, cars so uh, this may uh, confirm uh, this quote as it, at that time as we also discussed the teams have been much smaller so it was really uh, still that the driver had a higher influence uh, on the success of the team and it was uh, and uh, more important uh, role than uh, maybe today. Yeah, and also we will talk about, uh, you know, as the, the kind of we go through the history of Formula One, uh, that uh, the car, uh, the cars uh, changed and the regulation changed uh, around the car. So at one point it was the cars were so wide that you couldn't actually 
bypass <laughs> someone <laughs> if they were faster. Uh, at least you can do that very easily, that's for sure. So, um, yeah, so, and then the, that, this kind of the very precise specialization of people in, in teams uh, took over eventually. So now it's definitely a teamwork, whereas at the time it was probably more of a, you know, driver uh, leading the way for everyone else to make contributions to uh, better car. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I would agree, even if uh, even in that time, of course, it was uh, also important to get the best uh, engineers, especially for the engine. Maybe we'll speak a little bit more in the 1960s, but I completely agree the driver was much more important than today, at least uh, in, in the race. Uh, of course, it's still today very important as uh, the best drivers attract also the best uh, team members and they can motivate, keep people together. But I think in the past, it was still more relevant. Mm -hmm. And the last one, and with this, uh, I, uh, you can, may also rel rely uh, to uh, Cuba. Uh, there are those who keep out of mischief and they are the adventurers. The racing drivers are adventurers. The more difficult something is, the greater the attraction that comes from it. So here he used again the word adventure, and uh, I mean this uh, is, I think, uh, if we resume uh, his uh, legacy, uh, this is something what we can say that he was an adventurer. He enjoyed, uh, especially his uh, independence, uh, going from one team to another team. Uh, as you said, he never became uh, married. So it seems somehow that uh, if we want to. Uh, find some words to describe him besides being um, the El Maestro, also it would be the adventurer or something like this. Yeah, to me, uh, I don't have a very uh, poetic way of describing, <laughs> describing Fangio. I would say that he was uh, uh, error minimizer and precision maximizer uh, when, when I think about him. So it's all basically, how do you ma minimize the error on the track? How do you maximize precision on the track? So it's uh, interesting. So he had uh, this three, uh, two different uh, sides. So he was like uh, the, the professor, the master, but somehow he, he, uh, he was also the adventurer uh, with an importance of his personal independence, uh, not afraid uh, to leave his personal comfort zone and various time check the, the team, not getting afraid of getting kidnapped. So uh, he had these two different sides uh, inside him. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So that uh, kind of what we... Uh, what we think uh, his legacy was, of course, if you guys uh, are watching this and uh, you have uh, some ideas of uh, what you want uh, uh, to, um, yeah, how you would describe Fangio in, in, in one line, do let us know. You can leave some comments uh, below the video. We'd be very interested in, uh, in uh, hearing your opinion. And generally, yeah, I, that's probably something that we should emphasize in all these videos is this is something that, uh, you know, we think and this is our, exactly. our opinions, but uh, we, we are not uh, thinking about those as kind of truth, <laughs> the ultimate truth. So if you disagree with us, um, that you have something to add, please do leave the comments and we definitely exactly. would be very interested in your view on, on all of this. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, to end uh, this episode, uh, as we already mentioned shortly, 
if you're curious uh, about Juan Manuel Fancho and if you have the opportunity to travel to uh, Argentina, uh, to Buenos Aires, maybe you can do a one-day trip to visit his museum where you find also uh, one level about his friend and computer, Juan, uh, sorry, uh, Fräulein uh, Gonzalez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is in Balcarce, uh, so the, the, the town where uh, Fanja was born. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, we've already done our descriptions, so yeah, uh, you can now try to do your, <laughs> your exactly. description. Exactly, this will be your homework. Yeah, and uh, leave us some comments. And uh, on that on that note, we're going to end, end this episode. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Patrick, again for... Um, Thanks for your me. insight and in, into this and uh, thank you uh, thank thanks a lot to our viewers who uh, were with us uh, during this episode thank you guys thank you bye bye